What do you stand for? I suppose I've always been more loyal to ideas than people because the ideas don't change and the people can. Embattled former Minister Stefan Canol has been found guilty of misconduct. Today's scandal could have been the final nail in the coffin for Mr Canol if he hadn't already pulled the plug on politics. Do you think you owe the people an apology? No. In the moment presented with an ethical dilemma, I did what was right. It's hard to do what is right when you don't know that you're doing something wrong. In hindsight, what would you do differently? Nothing. But also, don't regret the incident or getting sacked. Um, because it, uh, you know, we all learn so much more through adversity than we do through success. A lot of people perceive politicians as liars. What do you say to them? So let's not keep you waiting any longer. This is Lead Podcast. I hope you're listening. Stefan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Our childhood mm-hmm. plays a very important role on who on who we become who we become later in life. So when I say that, and when you reflect on your childhood, what is one memory that you think had a significant impact on you? Um, tough question. Straight out of the bat. Uh, the bat. Um, look, uh, the memory I'll say is probably not important in and of its own, but what it represents is, is important. And uh, our family travelled a lot when I was younger uh, for Dad's work. Uh, he had to, we had to move to Darwin and Sydney uh, because he had a non-compete clause which wouldn't allow him to work in South Australia in the industry that our family's been in for, for a long time. Uh, and when we lived in Sydney, we lived in the far western suburbs um, in not a rich part or quite a rather poor part of Sydney uh, out in the far west. And uh, four boys plus mum and dad living in a small uh, three-bedroom house, very modest. But the memory that I have, which is one of the most fun, uh, is... Um, on a Friday night we'd go to Little Athletics and at that stage at Doonside they'd have to sweep the, the racing track to make sure there were no needles for us to run on um, but at the end of the night we would uh, collect all the cans uh, and unlike everybody who might be listening from South Australia and 5 and 10 cent deposit schemes they didn't have that in New South Wales at the time and we collected a heaped trailer full of cans right? and when it was too full to put any more in Dad says, that's it, we're going down to the recycling place. We get down there and we have to shovel them all into this big plastic hessian bag, right? And it was like a big wool bale. And they put it on the scale and it weighed 25 kilos. And they said, here's $25. And we went, excuse me? We've been doing this for like six months, nine months. And all we get is 25 bucks. And at that stage, a new Atari system cost about $129. And Dad then made a deal where every time we got an equal to personal best in little athletics, we'd get a dollar. And every time we beat it, we got $2. And we all had to try and beat our best to get to the 120 bucks so that we could get our first Atari system. And that, the lessons and the sort of camaraderie that my three brothers and I had in all collectively working towards that goal, uh, that's representative of my childhood, but also representative of my entire life. It's awesome. In hindsight, um, what 
privileges and luck you had that you think have helped you in who you are today and where you are today? So two things. Uh, one is having three brothers, uh, my best friends. Um, although if I was to say that in their presence, they would, uh, <laughs> they'd probably begrudgingly agree, but we have a, a dynamic um, uh, where we don't often show affection. Um, but uh, the other one is the fact that I've never been given pocket money in my entire life. Uh, our family's always been in business, like we've always been business owners, and if I wanted money, I had to work. And so, for instance, my, I started my first job when I was eight years old, and working for the family, and the money that I earned is the money that I used. So the money I earned during school holidays, I'd spend at the end of school holidays going to the movies with the boys. Um, but we had to earn, and we had to save in order to get what we wanted, and yeah in my memory we were never given pocket money you want something i give you a pathway to earn it and that that dynamic that lesson um has stood us all in good stead you know we all saved for our houses quite easily we all saved for cars quite easy um for weddings and the like uh, and those lessons and it's, it's funny i often say to my parents the best thing they ever did was give us a job instead of money and uh yeah i feel very lucky to have parents like that a lot of people now say you got to save money mm. but nobody teaches you how to do it right so you had that uh, the question around your brothers why wouldn't you show affection reading no, my mind Ollie. pardon you read my mind well it, it's interesting and it's and I'm just trying to be polite here because um, we we are probably more affectionate now that we've all had children and there's something about having children that softens a father I think we all get a little bit more emotional these days. Um, but the dynamic, if you were to see the four of us together, we show we show affection differently. We use humour, we give each other stick, we, um, yeah, the dynamic can be quite crude um, and sort of playful and can come across as mean, but um, it's anything but. And to the point where if, um, so I know something's really wrong if they're actually being nice. So you show affection and you show you you, you have banter with people that you feel comfortable enough with to have that with. Um, if all of a sudden they were being really really nice, I know something was really wrong somewhere. So how different or similar are you boys? Um, similar and all very very similar and all very different. We um, we all kind of look alike. We all have to wear glasses, um, and we all have many of the same values. And if you were to look at us, you'd think, yeah, they're four brothers. And in fact, often we get mixed for each other. We sort of get you know, uh, mistaken for each other. But we all have different strengths and weaknesses. And the beautiful thing is that we've been able to harness each other's strengths and weaknesses. And uh, I like the blurb on your podcast which says that leadership isn't about rank it's about a choice right and each of us four boys will actually be the boss or the leader in different situations depending on what skill set is required so if we go anywhere and somebody needs to cook um, even though sort of I was the CEO of the business and now the executive chair of the business um, I'm actually the lowliest like I'm, I'm, I'm scrubbing the pots 
you know, I don't get to touch anything that cooks meat or anything. You know, I, I'm, I go from the top to the bottom. Um, although when it comes to picking wine, for instance, that's my bag. Or uh, if it comes to something mechanic or electric, electric, you know, my oldest brother is the guy that you turn to. And um, although I know, if, for instance, I need if we hit a crisis situation again my youngest brother's the one that you actually want to be in charge because he he reacts well in those situations and we've been able to work that dynamic there's no ego it's just like there's four of us we have one goal at this point in time you're the best one to get this done so you just go and do it and we'll do what you we'll do what you tell us to do what does your parents sit in that dynamic so my parents had us four boys when they were quite young so mum was 25 by the time she'd had my youngest brother and we're all very close together so what are we now this is july so at the moment we are 40 41 39 38 37 around ages and there's about three months of the year where it's sequential right but mum had four boys by the time she's 25 right in fact all four of us had moved out of home by the time mum was 47 so because of that low age gap like i call my parents france and barbara um, which was a thing because at work if you said mum and dad they wouldn't respond because they're in work mode so you call them by their names but um, they uh, it's their it's, for instance this business that we run it's their business they still own it um, but we have a very familiar di- um, dynamic you know we yeah we're very sort of open and honest and our parents uh, gave us a lot of freedom and a lot of responsibility very young and but both of those things came together and they didn't save us from the mistakes we made they let us make those mistakes to learn and so we're rather independent but um, we are one big happy family it doesn't feel like there's a generational gap if that makes sense so you're somewhat like interdependent as well yeah and I mean that's what happens in in a family business but um, it's not like, like I, I relate well to my parents because the age gap isn't as big as what it could have been for other people or is for other people. Very interesting point there. So, mum got married at 17. Your mum? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And as you were talking about your family, the first thing I was thinking about was Right. How old was your mum when she had you? So you're there. Twenty-two. Right. Or t- maybe, maybe. Yeah, she would have still been twenty-two. Um, she was on her twenty-first birthday. She was pregnant with my older brother, and was already married. Mm. Not too far off. Ali's also shaking his head. <laughs> my mother had me when she was seventeen. Okay. Yeah. So seventeen and seventeen. No, so mum was married at seventeen. I'm married at seventeen. I was curious about mixing family and business together, but I think you've somewhat answered that. But it's a it's a really interesting topic, and and in my business now, it's it's not a skill that I recognised up front that I would have said, "Hey, look, this is my specialty." But for a couple of my clients, um, it's pretty important, and in fact, some of the people that have come to me, um, it's since has been pretty important. It works in our family. It doesn't work in most family businesses. Why? Some of it could be luck. 
um, some of it uh, could be stage of life. There's a saying that you know, first generation start a business, second generations build it, third generations kill it. Uh, and we're lucky that even though our family's been doing this for a hundred years, we boys are basically the second generation. Um, but uh, it's my thinking on this has really changed because in the beginning I would have said that um, that the business needs what the business needs and the family needs what the family needs and the family needs to serve the business first in order for the business to serve the family and I still think that that's true but the older I get the more I think well here's this vehicle and yes it's a vehicle to try and create some wealth for the family or try and create a legacy or to be proud of what you produce in our case but the business especially I mean our business now 31 32 years old uh, and these other business I work with ones what, 43 44 years old at certain points though the, the vehicle that is the business should be there to help the family and because uh, you know, you don't want to get to the end of your life and, and have been so ruthless that it's all about money. Over the course of the journey and over the course of creating an intergenerational family business, there are times where um, family gives, but there are times when family needs to take in difficult or crisis situations. And I like that the business can be there for that. Mm. Stepping aside from the family business for a second, just focusing on you, Stefan, mm. for a second. What do you stand for? Jeez, that's a tough question. I suppose I've always been more loyal to ideas than people. Because the ideas don't change, and, but the people can. Um, the ideas are a lot more consistent than the people. In the context of being a leader or, or having been in the positions that I've been in uh, and all the positions I've been in have tended to be about me but um, the longer I go through this the more uh, I've learned to put aside ego and uh, be more mission driven but also the mission matters less to me than the people I get to go on the mission with. And so, uh, this isn't a succinct answer, but um, I'm a firm believer that uh, helping others around you to rise up with you is, is much more important than being seen to be the guy that saves the day. And I don't know, that wasn't necessarily always the case, but um, it certainly is much more the case these days and I also am very much now move away from uh, I suppose I've, I've learned not to put up with poor behavior so before I you know sort of go with the flow and and just move and manipulate myself um, within whatever environment I was in but these days I find myself standing up and saying, actually, this isn't okay, and I'm the one that should say it's not okay. 
not always and um, you know we're all human and we're all flawed but um, more and more that's yeah so summing it up in three words or three dot points Uh, authentic um, empathetic the third one that I should say is honest but um, uh, that's probably the one I've got to work on most not in the context of lying but in the context of holding back There's, there's a few people in, in my life that are honest even when it potentially goes against their own self-interests. That's a, a bravery that I'd you know, like to get into more. This could be a good segue to, to your political career. You were tipped to, be, to, tipped to have a very long, success, successful political career, uh, but quite the opposite. Have happened. Can you speak about that? Sure. Um, I got into politics uh, in part to, well, in large part, to prove myself outside of the family business. Family family business was like a, you know, like a cocoon, like a, a warm, safe environment. A nest. And yes, that's probably yeah. And uh, I wanted to go and test myself in a dynamic where. You know, my last name didn't matter, and politics was a great avenue to do that. Um, I have strong beliefs and strong values, and I like to debate and argue. So uh, this was a great forum, and I was successful early, and I got pre-selected on my first go, and, and got elected then on my first go, uh, which is not that usual. Uh, it doesn't happen that way for most people, um, and sort of quite steadily rose through the, the ranks of the, the Parliamentary Liberal Party. Um, and when we won the election in, in 2018, um, and those four, those four years in opposition were extremely formative and, and helpful. Um, but, you know, the Liberal Party had been out of government for 16 years. To be there for being part of the new government in 2018 was pretty special. And to be given quite a heavy workload uh, when I left the ministry that replaced me with two and a half people um, and that was quite a privilege and, and a lot of fun and uh, a lot of hard work but it it, it certainly did test the f- furthest reaches of my brain and I really enjoyed being tested in that way but yeah when I got into it I was expecting to be there for probably 20 years in fact there was a there's a former MP called Ian Evans uh, who was a shadow treasurer and a, and a um, former leader of the Liberal Party who said to me that um, I should decide now up front, and this was in my first year of being an MP, decide up front when I would go, all the conditions under which I would go and not to hang around too long. And I'd sort of set in my mind that unless you know I was a senior minister or something else um, senior within government that um, at that 20 year mark, if I'd have, you know, I'd, if I haven't been able to make the change that I want to see or, or be part of change that I want to see after 20 years and that was it but as it turned out um, life's priorities changed and uh, uh, eight years was was enough I mean it's it's never enough there's always more you want to achieve but uh, for me eight years was uh, the right amount your career in, in parliament involved some say scandals yeah, you can call it that. 
Mm. And you were quiet in the public eye at the time, the mm. news surrounding you and everything that is usual in those circumstances. Yep. How did you control your emotions at that time? Mm. So the short answer is I didn't. Uh, I'm a oversharer. I come from, like when you exist in the nest, you, uh, you l learn to trust easily and be open and honest and share. Uh, and I do all of those things. And, and I took all of those things into politics. Uh, a lot of my colleagues don't. They're much more guarded. Uh, they protect themselves. Uh, and you know, I can only assume that's either the way they've been brought up or the circumstance in politics that they've learned, those lessons that they've learned. Unfortunately, I never had cause to learn those lessons. Or maybe I did. Um, but I also didn't really want to change who I was. I kind of liked being who I was. Um, and, uh, but over the course then of, well, I mean the first scandal was the, <laughs> the Ashley Madison scandal, which was maybe the point at which I should have learned the lesson. Um, uh, yeah, there was about 72 hours there where things were rather difficult to handle, but as the thing died down and, and we realised that it didn't really have any longer term consequence, um, things went back to normal pretty quickly. Uh, but in terms of the country members allowance, uh, that I could hold it together in front of the camera, but that was about it. And that's training, you get into a sort of a slightly more abstract mindset to be able to, to do those kinds of interviews and um, that part was fine. I mean, it gave a really awful interview on the ABC where my mind just I had a block in a way that I'd never really had before where I was kind of searching for a better answer but couldn't find one and sort of got stuck in this weird loop with the presenter and um, yeah, it did not turn out well. But the truth is I didn't and it actually developed an adjustment disorder because of it. Uh, I was not able to sort of rationalise or separate and the difference was if we're debating policy, if we're debating ideas, I don't mind that debate, I love that debate, and I don't mind being judged on that debate. But this was personal, and it was sort of a, and it came out of nowhere. So it's not like, here's this thing that I've been doing wrong, that I've been hiding, and now it's been exposed, and so I'd kind of prepare myself. What really happened was, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, it's like, hang on, I've been doing this thing for a while, um, claiming this money, and now all of a sudden, it turns out that it may not, I may not have been allowed to claim it. But nobody could tell me whether I could or couldn't. And nobody, nobody would give me advice on what the rules were. And I'm like, well, hang on, I, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. But nobody can still tell me if I'm doing anything wrong. So I repaid the money. That instantly made me guilty. And, but I did it because I wanted to be able to sleep at night. And I figured, you know, just being a good human being, this is the best course of action. What it wasn't was the most politically smart course of action. And it just made me the biggest target. Um, and because I was the most high profile of the people, I was uh, the biggest target. Um, but yeah, um, by the time like the week in Parliament was a bad week, um, and it, this week is the two year anniversary. Um, and uh, by the time the Sunday came around and the Premier called me and said, Steph, I need you to step down, I, I, did, I couldn't fight him, I had nothing left. 
Um, in fact, it was it was a mercy um, that meant that I could quietly go away and and sort of rebalance myself. But it it um, yeah, I developed an adjustment disorder that took me about nine months to get over. Quick one, can you please take a second and follow us on any platform you're listening from? It will help more than you know. Thank you. Well, very curious to know, did you feel that it brought some sort of like shame almost? Like yes. To your family? Oh, and I look like, you know, my dad uh, sort of intervened in the media a couple of times to try and help. Wasn't helpful, but he tried. You know, mum, mum pretended everything was fine, but I could tell it wasn't fine. Um, one of my brothers, he looks a lot like me. Um, people mistook him for me, and and he copped a little bit of abuse. Uh, but it's because you're instantly judged, and yes, and it's it's one of the reasons why. And I think I said in my final speech that, like, uh, and by the time I got to the final speech, I was okay again. But I couldn't keep doing this to my family. And it's not even just like my brothers and my parents, it's my wife, who's a very private person, and my two girls, who at that stage were still young enough that they didn't understand, they just liked the fact that dad was home. And um, they actually didn't care about the rest, and in fact, they kind of then said, well, now that you've been home for a while, you're not going back. Um, It was quite, yeah, at that stage, my youngest would have been, what was she, four? And after five weeks, because it sort of coincided with the midwinter break, so we had about five or six weeks off of Parliament. And when I went to go back to Parliament, she got quite ins- insistent. Well, when are you coming home? Okay, and for how often are you going to do this? And she kind of just went, no, is it, <laughs> you're not doing this anymore. Um, but yes, uh, the answer is, uh, and it, it, but isn't that always the way that? Because I would have learned to cope and, and was sort of learning to cope. But it's. The, Asking others to sacrifice is harder than sacrificing yourself. And I knew going into politics, and Amy and I went into her eyes wide open, um, it's my wife, and, uh, but continuing to ask her to increase the level of sacrifice I was asking her to make, that was getting harder and harder, and especially with young children. Um, yeah. You said... And it's quite obvious, you said that you climbed the ranks in politics quite quicker than most people do. Do you think that turned out to be to your own detriment? Yes. Yeah. Uh, But I have never been able to just sit on the sidelines. Uh, I know this about myself, that whenever I get involved in an organisation, doesn't matter what it is, if it's sporting or, or social or whatever, um, I always want to be in the middle where the biggest mess is. You know, I, I want to get my hands dirty, I want to get into the sort of the crux of whatever it is that we're here to do. And I don't mind taking on the hard stuff um, as long as I get to, you know, be at the centre of it rather than just on the periphery. And so, and politics was no different. Um, and that's the way it worked out. And it worked well but it you know uh, and I was probably naive and and, you know when you get sort of tagged with that sort of rising star future leader tag it boosts the ego it feels good you know so you don't want to get rid of that in fact you want more of that Um, but there's a lot of negative elements that come with that it means that you're always the guy that they come after and I thought I was tough enough and smart enough to be able to you know 
feedback, whatever they threw at me, but um, in the end, the country members um, allowance did, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it did uh, beat me at that time, yeah. In hindsight, what would you do differently? Nothing. If I'd have been more aware of the rules, um, I would have tried to clarify those rules. Because um, as it turned out, I actually didn't do anything wrong. And I was actually allowed to claim the money. Um, and with hindsight, I would have been smart enough to clarify those things. But in order to have done something differently, I would have had to have changed who I was. And I didn't want to do that. And um, I think about all the things, like maybe I would have given a better interview or thought through. Um, but, you know, we all understand how the, the butterfly effect works. You know, I, uh, I wouldn't have, because it's... it's who I am and, and to a degree those kinds of things are inevitable um, but also don't regret the incident or getting sacked um, because it um, you know we all learn so much more through adversity than we do through success and you know I'd like I'd been rather successful um, and this big dose of adversity I remember dad saying to me I was really down at his place once, and you know I said, "Dad, like I, you know, this is like I feel like a failure. I feel like this is the biggest failure I've ever had." And he said, "He said, welcome." He says, "I started failing a lot earlier than you." He said, "Now you know. Uh, now you know. Now you learn." And um, and it's not that like I haven't failed. I mean, I failed in business plenty of times and learned lessons from that. But um, it was just funny because he. Yeah, basically said, what took you so long? I love that. Do you think that was your biggest failure? Oh, I'd have to say yes, right? I mean, getting sacked as a minister is not ideal. And it's defining um, and uh, seminal and yes. But the, the bigger failures for me are the ones, are the idea battles that we lost. So... I took on a rather ambitious um, idea to reform the way that uh, buses work in South Australia and it was too much reform all at once and as I've come to learn, confusing a reform measure as a budget measure doesn't go down well and we did this, tried to do the same thing with land tax um, and it got us into trouble and if I'd have had the opportunity to purely reform the buses without having to try and save money in that environment. Maybe it could have worked, but would have been what would have been so much better would have been the opportunity to undertake incremental reform rather than system-wide reform. And we didn't communicate well, and there was a whole series of things that we could have done better. And that's the one that bothers me the most because um, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I now know how to get it done and to successfully get it done. It's those kinds of things that, that now bother me more, but um, history will forget those things and, and worry a lot more about you know, the personal scandal stuff. Yeah. There is a, I read an article about you that said um, Stefan never apologised for any of his wrongdoings. Do you think you owe the people an apology? No. And what's interesting is that um, 
probably the biggest lesson that I've learned out of this uh, is to care a lot less about other people and care a lot more about what I think. Um, and uh, it's um, it's interesting that you know we um, we're, we're supposed to love each other, love ourselves, right? You have to love yourself before others can love you. But we all seem to care so much more about what other people think rather than what we think. And when I think back on it, I claimed an allowance that has been claimed in that way for 60 years. Uh, rules were changed and I just didn't look at the rules. But the moment that it was brought to my attention, I did what was the right thing. I mean, even now, I could actually go back and claim the money, and but that was a decision I made not to. And But it... In the moment presented with an ethical dilemma, I did what was right. It's hard to do what is right when you don't know that you're doing something wrong. Um, and as it turned out, I didn't do anything wrong. But uh, and in politics, situations come at you. You don't. You can't. You can't have foresight to think of all of them. And you know, we we often try and elect leaders based on a shopping list of policies and things that they believe in. Um, but more and more, what we should be electing leaders on is who they are and the character. And and I think, you know, in Australia we're moving more to this presidential style of, of election elections at both the state and federal level, because we just want to know that in the uncertain situations and the situations that we can't foresee that our leaders are going to be asked to deal with, is this the kind of person that we want in those situations? And. Um, uh, you know, in a situation in which I was presented with some ambiguity about what I had done, I did what I thought was the best thing, and I'm comfortable. I sleep really well at night knowing that I did the right thing, um, and I was punished for it. Um, and in the end, it turned out I didn't do anything wrong, but I was still punished for it. Um, but that's okay, because in that moment, I did the right thing, and that's all any of us can do. It's no um, doubt that you've had a very interesting career so far. Starting, one of the first thing I could say found was the general manager of your family business yes. and the chief executive of your family business, and then you ended up in politics. But if, if I was to meet the 10-year-old Stefan today, like, mm -hmm. hey, mate, what, would you, what, what are you going to be when you grow older? What would he say? Well, <laughs> mum told a story that I, I remember differently, but then again, I was only eight years old at the time. When I was in grade two, we were living in Sydney, and um, we had to draw a portrait of what we wanted to be when we grew up, and supposedly I drew Bob Hawke. Um, now, I remember drawing Bob Hawke, but I don't remember wanting to be Prime Minister. Um, but, uh, yeah, certainly... If you, if you take away the, the specifics of wanting to go into politics, um, maybe the sort of ambition and drive to lead or to rise to the top of, of whatever field I choose to go into would probably be, um, you know, the sort of broad um, inclination I would probably be about right. Wow. So would you have a crack at it again at any point in the future? <laughs> I get asked that question a lot. <laughs> um, and Well, I didn't... And would have asked you, but I didn't know that that was a childhood dream. So, well, 
don't really know that it was a childhood dream. Running, you know, for the PM. Yeah, but sure, so, it's a bit easier. I mean, the reason I got into politics was because I was looking for some social activity that wasn't girls or sport or cars. Because I, I really, cars don't really interest me. My wife and I have been together since we were in high school, and I like playing sport, but I don't really like talking about sport. Um, except cricket, I could talk about cricket. Um, but uh, and Dad was actually part of the Young Liberals when he was in, in the mid '80s, and he said, "Well, why don't you go and join this?" And so I did, and I really enjoyed the people that I met because they were like me. They wanted to argue and debate ideas. They were, you know, smart. They were interested in the world around them. They were right of centre and and sort of, uh, you know, some of them, you know, had values similar to mine. In any political party, you know, you you have people who have difference of opinion. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I loved my time as a young liberal, and that's actually what spurred me to get into politics was joining the ecosystem and realising how much opportunity there was. Um, but, uh, yeah, rather than it necessarily being a, a childhood dream. The answer is? Well, sorry. Try to dodge you, the bullet there, mate. Did. So the, the cliched politician's answer would be to say, never say never, right? And you hear politicians say it all the time. My hypothesis at the moment is that I will have too much fun uh, and uh, have more impact doing what I'm going to do now. And you'll notice in state politics that politi politics is really now, at a state level, um, a young person's game. Um, and ideally, and, and my advice to many people would be to wait. Wait until your kids are a bit older, wait until you've got the benefit of, of greater maturity and life experience. But that's not what happens. Um, we are creating a political, a professional class of politicians that that more and more um, people come in from ranks within political parties as staffers alike and then go into to politics. I'm not saying that's right, I'm just saying that's what is. Um, and uh, there's no way that I'd go back whilst the kids are at school. Um, and I think by the time they get to university, um, I'll just be in a different stage of life. And But also, um, say this now because I'm going to say it a few times over the coming months. Politicians aren't always leaders. In fact, most of the time they follow public opinion rather than lead public opinion. And there are many, many exceptions to that, but it's the minority. Like at the moment I look at what Dom Dominic Perrottet, Premier of New South Wales, is trying to do around reforming stamp duty and land tax. That's brave. Um, but those kinds of, of, that kind of bravery is the exception rather than the rule. And the more I think about it, the more... Um, and sorry, you think about at social conscience issues, abortion, euthanasia. I mean, I'm conservative, but I don't deny the fact that actually public opinion has moved well ahead of where our laws have been on, on social conscience issues. I think on climate change, for instance, much of the population now is beyond where um, our politicians are on the issue. And so I actually think that there's an opportunity to be outside of politics and to lead. And I think that actually could be easier than being in politics. You can be more honest. You, you don't have to try and um, build a workable majority of the electorate. And you can afford to take the risk to change people's minds because there isn't the same consequence as there is when you're in politics. That might explain why a lot of people perceive politicians as liars. 
What do you say to them? So politics is difficult. And the problem is, is that every time you go on radio or go on television, um, where there's bipartisan consensus or multi-party consensus, it's boring, doesn't get any airtime. And, and you talk to anybody from local, state or federal government and they'll be able to give you a list as long as your arm of all the reforms that quietly happened because there was bipartisan consensus. And, um, but the media want conflict. And so, they try, and so they try and tease out that conflict. Mm. And so politicians get the reputation for lying because often the public don't want to hear the hard truths and the politician wants the votes so they are naturally reluctant to tell the hard truths. Um, and I look at the moment um, Jim Charman's new federal treasurer um, and even the new Prime Minister Albanese, they're trying at the moment to softly, softly give some hard news to the Australian public about the fact that you know federal debt and deficit is such a, at such a level that we're going to have to tighten the purse strings. Now, politicians tend to be most brave at the start of, of an election cycle. This is the time when, you know, at both state and federal governments um, try and be brave. I think that the federal government at this point is being more brave than what the new state government has been. Um, but uh, time will tell. Um, and then the closer you get to an election, the less brave politicians are. Um, and is an odd tripartite relationship between the politician, the public and the media and everybody has um, blame to wear in that sort of triangle of why politicians are the way they are. Uh, but I do think that politicians should try harder to be better. Quick question there. You've said the word brave a few times. Just saying the absolute truth the public is what means to be brave and is it always a good thing to actually say the truth to everyone <laughs> well it depends uh, and in politics you so often get caught up in does, does the ends justify the means so for instance uh, you think early COVID a lot of the messages that were coming out um, were trying to shock the public into taking this pandemic seriously at a time when it was abstract. It was overseas, it was a problem that was happening in the UK, it was happening then in America, but it wasn't really happening here. But you kind of need people to, to understand the gravity and so you speak in a way that tries to shock people, scare people into to think, hang on, you've got to take this thing seriously. I think economically too that the truth always isn't necessarily the best thing and so, for instance, I was listening to something today that was suggesting that two-thirds of Americans believe that they're in recession, when they're not. But I look at, at the role of treasurers and heads of government and reserve banks and senior economists who, you know, you think sometimes, geez, they're talking up the economy, something serious here, something fierce. But they're probably doing it and not being completely truthful because they're trying to encourage behaviour that'll save the economy. So for instance, the reason I bring it up about the US and two-thirds people thinking they're in a recession, the act of two-thirds people thinking they're in a recession changes the, means that they'll change their behaviour such that they will cause a recession. And so there are times where, you know, you're trying to get to an outcome that's good, that's pure and true, um, but, uh, you know, if you were to be brutally honest, you'd, <laughs> um, you'd move away from the, the goal that you're trying to achieve. Interesting.
reality versus perception? Well, perception is reality. And it, it, um, I look at the land tax debate, for instance, where, uh, you know, the, the, if you listened to the media rhetoric and the public rhetoric, you'd have think that we were taxing people into oblivion. The answer is that the package that got passed actually was a net tax cut of about 80 to $100 million a year. Um, but that's not what the rhetoric said, and, and perception was reality. Now, we passed this thing, but it, um, um, it, uh, the public's perception on it was very, very different, and because of that perception, it made it all the more difficult to be able to pass it. Um, and I've seen that happen so often. Um, the perception is so much more important than the reality. This brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we would appreciate if you could follow us on whatever platform you are listening from. Until next time, you lead the way.